According to the American Bible Society, only 9% of Gen Z youth and 23% of Gen Z adults consider themselves Bible-centered. Now, this decline in faith shows no signs of slowing, and it all has a negative impact on the biblical idea of supporting Israel. But rather than curse the darkness, one organization is lighting a candle. Come on over to the bright side as you join us now for The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer is our host. He's a lifelong student of Israel, an expert on the Old Testament, and a great friend as well. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, we're excited to announce A Land and the Book Book Blast. Now, what's that? John, I'm excited about this as well. That's uh, six books we're going to be giving away. Amazing. Uh, Tell us about it. Well, we've never given away six in one time before, but it's Christmas, so why not? These are all guests that we've had on the program, and they're sharing their books with you. For example, The Third Jihad by Michael Youssef, uh, Trudy Cathy Wyatt's A Quiet Strength, or The Book of Acts as Story, Phyllis J. LePo's Women of the New Testament. These are all part of the package of six books we're giving away. Charlie, how does somebody enter into this book blast giveaway? Uh, it's actually pretty simple. All they need to do is send us an email. Now, they need to send it by Sunday night, the 5th, uh, but then just tell us why they would recommend the land in the book to someone else. It's that easy. Yeah. Well, again, our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Tell us why you would recommend the land of the book to a friend and get that to us by midnight, Sunday, December 5, and we'll be entering your name into our Book Blast giveaway, six books in that package. Charlie, let's head into our current events segment here on this program with a great number of stories to cover, as always. Talks on reviving the nuclear deal with Iran finally got underway this past week. In terms of outcomes, what do the West, Iran, and Israel want to see happen to consider these talks successful? Well, you know, the talks did resume in Vienna on Monday after a five-month break, and there were some optimistic comments given going into the meeting, but the initial discussion actually ended up focusing on trying to agree on what would even be included on the agenda for discussion. Now, that's not a good sign. Uh, Iran's top negotiator and, and their civilian nuclear chief both suggested everything that was discussed in previous rounds of diplomacy is still on the table for renegotiation. And they said Iran's main goal is to ensure the lifting of all U.S. sanctions. In fact, their chief negotiator said this round of talks will focus solely on the removal of sanctions. He also said Iran's window of opportunity for the West won't remain open forever. That was little more than a veiled threat. You know, do what we want or we're going to walk away. Mm. Now, for its part, Washington tried to stake out a firm position, even though they're not technically at the table. Uh, They're not part of the direct negotiations. But they said Iran needs to comply with its commitments to the agreement before any sanctions are removed. Now, there is a sense of urgency to these talks. Uh, Since the so-called breakout time, you know, the time needed for Iran to assemble an operational nuclear weapon has narrowed dramatically. One major problem in the negotiations is that while the U.S. and France and Germany and the U.K. seem united, at least in pushing for the Iranians to first agree to return to the terms of the original deal, Russia and China, the other partners, seem to be siding with Iran and demanding that sanctions be lifted first. But back to that original question. From the U.S.'s perspective, Iran needs to return to the limitations on enriching uranium. Now, we might want additional safeguards, but it seems the U.S. is willing to settle for just going back to the original agreement. 
From Iran's perspective, they want all sanctions lifted that were imposed by President Trump, but they also want all other sanctions lifted as well. Hmm. Uh, They're likely willing to return to the original agreement because its expiration date is now getting closer. That's when limitations on the nuclear program are scheduled to drop anyway. Israel isn't an official part of the talks, but they have an existential interest in what's decided since even this week, the spokesman for Iran's armed forces urged the total elimination of Israel. He said, we will not back off from the annihilation of Israel even one millimeter. Hmm. Israel has said they're not going to abide by any deal that allows Iran to continue developing a nuclear bomb or the technology to produce and deliver those nuclear weapons. The West might be willing to take a chance on Iran, but Israel can't afford that luxury. And hopefully, The West will listen to the message being voiced by Iran's leaders and take those threats against Israel seriously and stiffen their backbone as these negotiations limp along. Charlie, am I over-dramatizing things when when I assess that this could potentially be more uh, serious than the very first set of Iran talks? Uh, I think it is because Iran is now at the point where they're enriching uranium to 60%. It's only a slight increase from that to 90%, which is weapons-grade uranium. Mm. Uh, Some think they're within a month of being able to push over the boundary and have enough uranium enriched to actually build at least one nuclear weapon. Well, last weekend, Israel closed its doors to tourists because of the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. What led them to make this decision, and what impact will it have on tourism? John, it's hard to believe. Less than a week after I flew home from Israel, uh, that country went from taking steps to promote tourism to barring any tourists from entering the country. And the move came as a surprise, but it was prompted by the sudden rise of the Omicron variant and by the discovery that individuals with that new variant were already in Israel. Now, Israel had been experiencing a rise in COVID cases before the appearance of this variant, with some in Israel expressing concern over a possible spread during Hanukkah. And then when the reports of this new variant exploded onto the scene, uh, including its ability to be transmitted more easily than the Delta variant, well, that's when Israel decided to shut its doors to give the country time to assess and prepare for the new strain. Now, as we're recording this, we still don't have solid data on the severity of the new variant or the effectiveness of current vaccines to stop its spread, but it could turn out to be a minor blip in the history of this pandemic or it could become the next major hurdle that nations are going to have to face. But right now, we just don't know. But we do know the impact this is going to have on tourism, and it's not good. Tourists were already skittish about traveling during the pandemic, and this is going to likely scare off some others. I already know of at least one tour that was canceled over fears on the part of tour participants. Uh, And that concerns me, since I know so many are going to be impacted, from tour operators and guides and bus drivers, all the way down to the hotel staff. One Arab porter at the Jerusalem hotel I was at had just been hired back after being unemployed for 18 months. Mm. Now, all those people are going to be hurting. Uh, My next trip isn't until February, John, and I'm hoping everything will have settled down and reopened long before then. But I suspect that even if this is just a short-lived closure, it's still going to have an impact on tourism negatively well into the summer. And that's sad. Dr. Charlie Dyer with you, John Geiger as well, as we work our way through a list of current event stories from the Middle East. Turkey's President Erdogan decided to cut his country's interest rates in spite of rising inflation. Why did he make this move, Charlie, and what impact will it have on Turkey's economy? 
One economist called the decision a textbook example of what not to do with interest rates. Erdogan's concerned about a weak economy and rising inflation. Uh, By lowering the interest rate, he's hoping to rev up Turkey's economy and promote growth through the increased export of cheaper Turkish goods. However, the move is more likely going to result in a deeper currency crisis over the coming year. Uh, Inflation in countries around the world is on the rise, but our inflation woes pale in comparison to what's been happening in Turkey. Uh, Since September, they've cut their interest rates by 4%, from 19% to 15%. But in that same period of time, the lira lost over 30% of its value relative to the dollar. So far in 2021, the Turkish lira has declined nearly 40% in value. Now, that massive depreciation of their currency will result in massive inflation for the average citizen whose salary can now purchase, well, just 60% of what it could buy a year ago. Erdogan's hope is to export enough Turkish goods and attract enough foreign tourists to offset the drop and bring in hard foreign currency. But the Omicron variant in COVID could hold down tourism to Turkey in the coming year, taking away that revenue source. Meanwhile, the cost of food and fuel for the average citizen continues to rise. Turkey's economic collapse could parallel that of Lebanon. And if it does, it could also generate the same political instability that's gripped that country. Right now, Turkey's a bargain for tourists with dollars or euros, but it's a nightmare for the average Turkish citizen who has seen his or her buying power evaporate thanks to poor economic decisions being made for political reasons. Well, Israeli scientists have developed a way to make immunotherapy drugs effective using just a millionth of a regular dose. You heard that right, a millionth. What impact will this latest innovation from Amazing Israel have on the medical field? You know, this has real potential to help anyone who has to go through chemotherapy. Right now, this trial is focused on one particular immunotherapy drug called TRAIL. Uh, The drug showed good promise in clinical trials, but it didn't make it through regulatory approval because the dose needed was too large and brought with it side effects. And that highlights one of the problems with chemotherapy. Uh, Drugs can be effective against the cancer cells, but they can also impact other healthy cells, both in the immediate area and in other parts of the body. Uh, The team from Technion invented a technology to insert the cancer drug into the membrane of special cells that are able to deliver the drug with greater accuracy to tumors. Uh, Because the drug's encapsulated in stem cells, it's hypoimmunologic, which means it doesn't provoke the body's immune system to react. And the technology takes the drug to the exact tumor site in the body, requiring far less of a dose while also lessening side effects. Now, hopefully, this new technology now being developed will move from the research laboratory into doctor's offices, and when it happens, we'll again be able to thank researchers from the Technion in Amazing Israel for their contribution to humanity. Thanks, Charlie. That's a great look at current events from the Middle East. A quick reminder, it's a book blast going on right now. Charlie, what do we mean by a book blast giveaway? We have six books to give away, and people just need to write in an email telling us why they would recommend the Land in the Book to their friends, and do so by Sunday night if they want to receive a chance to win one of these six books. The Book of Acts as Story, Women in the New Testament, The Third Jihad, part of that Book Blast giveaway. Email us, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. According to the American Bible Society, only 9% of Gen Z youth and 23% of Gen Z adults consider themselves Bible-centered. 
Now this decline in faith shows no sign of slowing. And this all has a negative impact on the biblical idea of supporting Israel. But rather than curse the darkness, one organization is lighting a candle. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. How about pausing with me for just a moment to think about creative ways that you and I can reach out to our Jewish neighbors and friends for Christ. When you and I are building friendships, relationships with our Jewish friends, there's a point at which we're sharing of ourselves, of our own lives. And whether that is our faith or whether it's day-to-day stuff, I think there's room for being transparent, don't you think? Let's ask Justin Crone of Chosen People Ministries. Yeah, I, th- I think we should always be looking for opportunities to be sharing what is God teaching us hmm. in our lives? Yeah. Um, what are we learning? You know, if you're going to church, if, if you're listening to Christian radio, if you're reading good Christian books, you're learning something yeah. and hopefully benefiting from what you're learning. So share that with them. Say, you know, I was— in church this, this weekend, heard a great message on marriage. Hmm. There's a good chance that your married friend, your married Jewish friend, might learn just as much as you will. <laughs> um, and so that's what I would say. I'd take advantage of those opportunities to share who you are. You know, it reminds me of a preacher who reminded me that the original Greek on the construction of Matthew 28, go and make disciples, it's actually in your going, as you go make disciples. So what you're saying, Justin, it's as you're having conversation, as you're doing life. Uh, you know, just involve them. Exactly right. So uh, be authentic about uh, who you are, uh, live your life. Um, But while you do it, remember that you are an ambassador. You are a representative of Jesus and of the greatest message in the world. Always great to check in with Justin Crone, who's with Chosen People Ministries, and his advice for us today on the land and the book. Scott Phillips serves as the executive director of Passages, The mission of Passages is to connect American college students with their faith by walking where Jesus walked, praying where Jesus prayed, and experiencing the majesty of the Holy Land. Now, prior to joining Passages back in 2015, Scott was a pastor and then the Midwest Outreach Director for APAC, that's the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Scott lived for three years in Israel with his wife Ashley, serving as the Christian Travel Brand Manager. For an organization there, Scott is passionate about connecting next-generation Christian leaders with deep biblical roots and introducing them to the people and places of Israel. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book, Scott. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. I understand that every year your group, Passages, brings around 2,000 college students on a nine-day trip across Israel proclaiming God's name from beginning to end. Are these uh, exclusively Christian kids from evangelical churches, or is there a mix? That's a great question. Uh, Yes. Uh, So before the pandemic, we actually took 2,700 students in 2019, Mm. and uh, unfortunately haven't been able to do that in the last year and a half. But this summer, we got 500 students in the country. And so it's it's an incredible experience for these students, uh, really, to strengthen their faith and uh, connect to the Bible and the place where it was written. How do these students find out about passages? I mean, uh, they're just normal college kids doing their thing, and then, boom, this uh, is suddenly on their radar. What's typical for their discovery of passages and, and how it all works? Yes, absolutely. So these students are from a mix of backgrounds. Uh, some evangelical students, uh, they're Catholic, uh, they're Christian. They're those who, who want to connect deep with their faith. And so a lot of our students find out about us through their school. We have partnerships with uh, universities across the country, whether it be Christian universities, Christian colleges, Bible schools, 
or um, even non-Christian schools, secular schools, state schools. And we work with a lot of student ministries on those Mm -hmm. campus. And uh, a lot of students also just go on our website and sign up for the interest list and apply for a trip. Hmm. Passages is an unapologetic supporter of Israel and has a mission to provide students with a deeper connection with their faith. We're talking with the executive director of Passages, Scott Phillips, today on The Land and the Book. Well, explain the uh, cost model that you all have and how it's all funded. I mean, you've got airfare, hotels, meals. Uh, Travel to Israel is not an inexpensive venture, but somehow you've made it affordable for college kids. That's right. Uh, We we thought it was, you know, very important to be able to offer an affordable option for college students because, you know, a lot of Christians— a lot of people, you know, wait till they're older and till they can afford it or, you know, till they saved up. And, and sometimes, you know, they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, sometimes 70s, 80s. And so we thought it was important to really engage this next generation. And so we can do this through, uh, obviously, students, they pay a portion of their trip. But we have very generous donors from diverse communities uh, that, that really uh, share the same mission as us to really uh, strengthen the faith of these students and connect them to Israel. With so many younger people, unfortunately, buying the uh, dominant media narrative that the Israelis are occupiers, forcing the poor Palestinians out of their homes, what kind of reactions do you see from students after they see the situation on the ground for themselves with their own eyes? Yes. So, you know, passages, obviously, we support uh, Israel. Uh, We support the Jewish people all over the world, and that is a big part of our mission. Uh, When we go over on these trips, we really just want to introduce the students to the facts on the ground. So they meet with all kinds of different people. They meet with Israeli Jews. They meet with Israeli Arabs. They do meet with Palestinians as well, and they hear different perspectives, all the while knowing that Passages is an organization that supports the Jewish state, uh, that desires that, you know, the students that come on the trip become friends of Israel and the Jewish people, and also other people that live in the land. And so students really go over there and they realize that it's not as black and white as what they've heard in the media or what they've heard on campus about Israel. And uh, most times they do walk away, you know, with, uh, with a desire for friendship with mm-hmm. Israel. And yeah. this is a really important part of the program. How is a Passages tour of Israel different than what many of our listeners have experienced as they've traveled in Israel? That's a great question. You know, part of it is a lot like what people go, you know, when they go on trips uh, with their churches or different ministries or on their own. So we do definitely go see all of the biblical sites. Um, We really focus on that redemptive narrative from all the way from Abraham to Jesus, the disciples and the gospel going out to the nations from Israel. So that is something that they definitely do, visiting all of those sites from the Bible. Lots of times of worship, lots of times of prayer, devotion at these biblical sites. But also, to your question, what makes it different is that students have an an opportunity to interact with the people who live there today and to see what's happening in modern Israel, to see this this modern miracle that is Israel, we believe, and uh, and have an opportunity to, to visit sites relating to the modern state of Israel, to hear from experts, geopolitical experts, also, you know, have cultural experience such as Shabbat dinners on a Friday night in a Jewish family's home. And uh, places like Yad Vashem, the Gaza border, obviously we know earlier this summer uh, there was a lot of conflict on the Gaza border, but our students, as long as it's safe, uh, they take a trip down to the border and they visit with these communities that are impacted. So I'd say the main difference is that, you know, students get to meet the people who live there today, the living stones, so to speak. Hmm. 
Scott Phillips serves as the executive director of Passages. The mission of Passages is to connect American college students with their faith by walking where Jesus walked, praying where Jesus prayed, and experiencing the majesty of the Holy Land. Why don't you share a specific story of impact on a student's life? What comes to mind? Yes, absolutely. We had one student who, uh, she was from the Midwest and always had a desire to have an impact back in her community, but she came to Israel and, of course, connected with her faith in a deeper way. She was already a committed believer, but really found, you know, discovered sort of the roots of her faith, but also really saw in Israel that, you know, a lot of people are over there fighting for their right to exist. They're fighting for, you know, safety. They're fighting for security. And they're making an impact, and they're resilient, and they don't give up. And so she, she was inspired by that. She went mm. back home to the Midwest, and she actually ended up running uh, for a state political position in mm. the state House of Representatives in Ohio. And uh, she was inspired, uh, at least in part, to do that because of her trip to Israel. And uh, we hear other stories, countless stories of students who, who maybe aren't. They're Christians. They've maybe grown up in church, or maybe they came to faith a few years ago but they're really struggling in their faith. And we, we love having those kinds of students because they go to the place where it was written, yeah. the place where it took place. They discover those roots and they find that strong foundation, that biblical foundation, and their lives are changed. Their career trajectories are changed and, and they connect with their churches more, their student ministries more, and most importantly, the Bible and Jesus more. And so we hear those stories all the time. You know, up front, we quoted some statistics about Gen Z youth and adults. And I have to ask, are you seeing any kind of a decline in student interest in traveling to Israel? Or is it about the same as it's always been? You know, that's an interesting question, because in the past, you know, there really hasn't been organized way for young Christians, specifically college students, young professionals, to be able to go to Israel in an attainable way or an organized way. And so enters passages, you know, we come in and we realize that there's a need here for students to be able to, Christian students, to be able to make this pilgrimage, this holy pilgrimage uh, to this place so important to their faith. And so, you know, it's hard to say what interest has been in going to Israel, but what we've seen is that many students are interested in going to Israel. We've, we've taken uh, over 8,000 students to Israel. We have a waiting list now course, partly because of the pandemic, but there's a lot of demand out there. Students are interested in going. We had one student uh, who actually, funny story, now works for us, works on our team here. He wanted to go to Israel, and he was a sophomore or junior in college, and he Googled a Christian trips for students, and up pops passages, hmm. and five, six years ago, that wouldn't have happened. So we're just grateful for this vision to be able to do this. Scott Phillips lived for three years in Israel with his wife, Ashley. The couple make their home in the Dallas area. Scott is pretty passionate, as you can tell, about connecting next-generation Christian leaders with the deep biblical roots of their faith, introducing them to the people and places of Israel. Let me ask, what's the toughest part of doing what your team does at Passages? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, the tough part is, I think, you know, obviously we have students for, it, it's a tough part, but it's a blessing too, because we have students from diverse denominational backgrounds, uh, diverse theological viewpoints, all kinds of students, you know, so we take any student from being a, a, a Catholic to being a, a Baptist, a charismatic, a mainline. So we engage with denominations across the, the Christian spectrum. And, uh, you know, that obviously brings its challenges mm -hmm. um, because people are coming 
different places, but it's also an opportunity and a blessing for the church because we can see, even if it's a microcosm, an opportunity for unity as they get on the bus, you know, especially if it's a bus from, you know, maybe different schools or from our interest list online and, and they're placed with people that they're Christians, but they may think very differently on a number of issues. Yeah. Um, but by the end of the trip, uh, they are laughing together, singing together, worshiping together, and it's a great picture of Christian unity. How is passages treated by the Israeli government? I'm curious. Do they even know that you guys exist? What's the relationship there? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. They definitely know uh, we exist. I think that they're very happy that we exist. Um, you know, we, we obviously don't get support from the Israeli government, and that's, that's something that's, uh, you know, a decision that we made. Uh, as far as, you know, resources, monetary resources. But the Israeli government, we have a great relationship. Uh, We work a lot of times with various consulates in the Ministry of Tourism, uh, the embassy in Washington, D.C., and uh, we're we're very proud to have a great relationship uh, with the government of Israel. How can listeners get involved? They're saying, boy, this sounds good. I'd like to be sure that Passages is around for when my kids are in college, or maybe they're in college now. I'd like them to get on board. Uh, how, How can listeners get involved? Yes, that's very important. Obviously, I think there are two ways, right? Uh, one way, obviously, if you have a college student that would glean from this experience, that would be edified, encouraged, and, and built up by this experience, um, you know, they could definitely sign up and apply for a trip. Obviously, resources are limited, spots are limited, scholarships are limited, but we do take those applications online. But, you know, a second way is obviously supporting passages, even with a small gift or a monthly gift. And, and ensuring that Passages is around, like you said, uh, for generations to come. One of my team members says, we want Passages to be around until Jesus comes back. And <laughs> so we do need that support. And so people can either sign up to apply for a trip or give online at passagesisrael.org. All right, and we'll put a link to your website at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Love these snapshots of all that you're doing. Praise God for that great work and stay at it. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you. All right. And coming up next on the program, one of our favorite segments, Charlie Dyer will open his Bible, look at your questions, and connect the two here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for sticking around for this segment here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. And for somebody new to the broadcast, what is this segment about, Charlie? Oh, John, it's one of my favorite segments. It's where people who've had questions about the Bible, something they've read, something that they've heard, uh, they have an opportunity to write to us and ask the question. And if they're willing to write and ask the question, I'm willing to try and give a response and help them understand that passage or that uh, event a little more clearly. Uh, The teacher in me just loves it. All right. Well, we'll dig into our questions for the week, starting with Steve's. He takes us to the book of Acts. He says, it seems that people did not receive the Holy Spirit or were not able to heal others until the apostles laid their hands on them. Is this why much of the church today seems so impotent? Are there modern-day apostles? And is it necessary to receive the Holy Spirit through them by the laying on of hands? It seems that today the real work of God is being done by those who speak in tongues and exhibit the Spirit of God through healings, signs, and wonders. Just wondering if I'm missing something. Right. And what I'd suggest, Steve, is uh, grab a piece of paper and a pencil just to jot down some references so you can check them out later. But uh, here's how I'd approach it. The book of Acts really is a transitional book. It's, it's covering the transition from the Israel to the church. Prior to Acts 2, 
Most believers did not have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, even though they were believers. The Holy Spirit was then poured out on the believing Jews in Acts chapter 2, on the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and finally on the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And it was Peter who was given the, the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, who was given the privilege of bringing all of those groups into that uh, fellowship of having the Holy Spirit indwelling all believers. So I think the better place to go in terms of what God has for us today is to turn to passages in the epistles where Paul gives clear instruction about the Holy Spirit for us as believers. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he writes, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Uh, in other words, the baptism by the Holy Spirit isn't something that happens after salvation in this present age. It's a vital part of our salvation experience. It's what the Holy Spirit uses to place us into the body of Christ. Now, spiritual gifts are something given by the Holy Spirit at that moment of salvation. Paul talks about the uh, different gifts. Uh, some are more miraculous gifts, like speaking in tongues or foreign languages. But Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 12, those aren't given to every single believer. In fact, Paul asks a bunch of questions, and he uses a Greek form that demands a negative answer. He says, are all apostles? Well, no, they're not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. And in chapter 13, he says some of those gifts are temporary. He says, where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, that ability to speak in an unknown language, it'll be stilled. Where there's the special gift of knowledge, it'll pass away. And it's interesting to me that uh, the church that had these gifts perhaps demonstrated more than any other was the church in Corinth. They were also the church that had some of the greatest struggles spiritually. Mm. Now, one last point. Even in the early church, the more spectacular gifts didn't guarantee spiritual maturity or divine power. Again, that's why Corinth was such an issue. And I say all that to say this, uh, you haven't missed out on anything by not focusing on miraculous sign gifts or by not following so-called apostles, but discovering and exercising the spiritual gift God has given you, and then by using it while demonstrating your love for God and your love for others, that's what will allow you to experience everything God wants you to have. Sue says, I'm thinking about the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Were lions native to the area? And what would be the purpose for having a den full of them? Yeah, actually, lions were found throughout the Middle East in ancient times. You know, we know in the Bible uh, that Samson and then later David killed lions. Uh, we know of their presence in Mesopotamia from carved reliefs on the walls found in both Assyria and Babylon. The kings of Assyria were shown hunting lions, perhaps to show you know their prowess and skill as leaders. I think this even goes back in the Bible to the time of Nimrod, the founder of both Babylon and Nineveh, who's described as a mighty warrior on the earth and a mighty hunter before God. So it's likely that the lions in Babylon were kept alive in a den or enclosure and then were released either for hunting events uh, and in the meantime were probably kept as a gruesome way to dispose of enemies of the state which is what the court officials hoped would happen to Daniel. But uh, God shut their mouths. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. The questions, well, they're yours. And if you haven't heard your specific question yet, maybe you haven't emailed us. Here's how to connect The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Roberta says, I'm doing a word study on 1 Timothy 2.15 and found that the Greek word sozo there is the same word used in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, 
which talks about women being saved in childbirth. Now, I read several commentaries on this, and they say that translating the word as preserved in verse 15, as the NASB renders it, would be better. However, Paul's use of this word there still puzzles me. Can you shed any light? I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Uh, Bible study is great, and sometimes it raises more questions than we get answers, but you're approaching the Bible the way you ought to. Uh, the word sozo does have a range of meaning. Uh, it can be translated as save or maintain or preserve, and it depends on the context. Now, in the particular context in 1 Timothy 2, and I think it was verse 15 there, not verse 4, uh, the context focuses on childbearing. So the idea of being preserved through childbearing seems to be an appropriate translation. But when Paul uses the same word there in verse 4, I think he's using it in a slightly different way. Now, in that verse, the use of the word saved is parallel to, and he says, come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, in the previous verse, Paul refers to God as our Savior uh, using a related noun, soteros. And then in the following verse, Paul adds that Jesus is the mediator between God and man who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Now, all of that to say, the immediate context of verse 4 helps us see that Paul is clearly using sozo there in the sense of saving from sin, while in verse 15, the context has the idea more of being preserved through childbirth. And that's why in looking at the word, even the same word used close together, it's the immediate context that can help us, I think, get that distinction in subtle change of meaning. Tirza says, I was studying the creation of the world, and I had to ask, when Satan was cast out of heaven, I believe he landed on the earth. Is that the reason why in the beginning the earth was all dark and disorganized, like what it says in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1? Yeah, and we don't have enough information in the Bible to be able to say for certain Satan's fall is linked with the description of the earth in Genesis 1. But here's what we do know. We know Satan was driven from his position in heaven as one of the guardian cherubim. That's Ezekiel 28. Though he still has some limited access into the presence of God. We, we find that when he goes in in Job chapter 1 uh, to uh, complain about Job. Uh, Satan's fall likely did take place before the creation of the world, since the angelic realm was already present at the time of creation. Uh, one of those fascinating verses is Job 38, verses 4 to 7, which says the angels were there when God created the earth. And since Satan appears almost immediately in the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam and Eve, I think that shows that indeed he had fallen before God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden. So it's at least possible that Satan's rebellion and fall do have a connection to the original creation being without form and void and with darkness over the face of the earth. Uh, if that's the case, then I believe God created the world that we now see out of that darkness and void in six literal days. Now, uh, got to go on though. Someday Satan's going to lose all access to heaven. Uh, and to the earth. In Revelation 12, we're told about it. And he's going to be taken into the abyss for a thousand years in Revelation 20. And ultimately, he's going to be put in a lake of fire. Uh, so Satan's had a long career. Uh, he certainly opposed God for a long time, but we do know that's coming to an end. All right, here's Gene's question. Some of the people in the tribulation will receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Will the Holy Spirit indwell them at that time? Uh, with the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, that is where the Holy Spirit places believers into the body of Christ, that ends at the rapture. But the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit does not. And here's why I say that, for two reasons. 
First, the benefits of the new covenant for Israel and the church includes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jeremiah 31 says God's going to put his law into their minds and write it on their hearts. And the parallel passage in Ezekiel 36 says, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to keep my laws. Uh, The new covenant was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. And so I think all believers since that day will have the indwelling Holy Spirit. There's a second reason, though, I believe this, and it's Joel chapter 2. Joel describes uh, the day of the Lord that's coming, and he says, during that day, I'll pour out my spirit on all people, referring to the, in the context, the people of Israel. And he says, uh, it's going to be poured out, uh, not limited by sex. He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy by age. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions and even social position. Even all my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit. And he says that's the same time when God's going to be bringing supernatural signs on the earth. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. So what he really is saying is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be taking place uh, in the tribulation period when those signs are happening and when God is judging the world just prior to the return of his son. And that's a look at questions here on The Land and the Book, where we welcome you to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. Of course, you'll find information about today's guest. Of course, you can look ahead to next week's program. Yeah, it's all there, as well as uh, some information and some books that Charlie and I have written, all at thelandandthebook.org. You're going to love Charlie's devotional. It's next right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Thanks for joining us today on The Land of the Book. I'm John Gager with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, you and I over the years, like any Christians out there, have prayed in a variety of settings, but your devotional takes us to some prayers that were prayed in a cistern? That's right, John. We're going to be looking at cistern prayers today. And that's not brethren in cistern either. (laughs) All right. We'll look forward to that. But uh, not until we take a look at what it's like to go to Israel, have your life transformed by the experience. Here's another Holy Land experience. Hi, my name is Miriam Galvin. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Um, I love the way Charlie put his sermonettes, and I really enjoyed and I got quite a bit out of them. I just love the way he uses his servanthood to fill in the details that is needed. And I learned quite a bit that I need to be more of a servant like Jesus taught us to be a servant. And Charlie demonstrates that on a daily basis and on every piece of the trip. It was just fantastic. The other thing I loved was the bell caves. I really enjoyed that. So because the acoustics is so nice, I always said, well, we gotta do the do-it-yourself Messiah down there. Loved it. Thank you, Charlie. Always fascinating to hear what uh, hits, what connects with people when they're traveling in Israel. Their hearts are never the same, right? All right, Charlie, we were talking about prayers from a cistern. I've prayed in a lot of places and circumstances, but never in a cistern. Uh, You haven't in a cistern, but you may have had a similar circumstance. Lyle Dorset began his biography on the life of D.L. Moody with an unusual story of Wilfred T. Grenfell, a medical doctor in London, England. One night, just out of curiosity, Grenfell slipped into the back of a popular religious gathering being held in the city. Inside, a man was leading in prayer. Unfortunately, the one praying seemed to go on and on. Grenfell couldn't take it anymore. 
As he later recalled, The prayer bored me, and, and I started to leave as he droned on. But before he could make it out the door, A vivacious person on the platform jumped up and shouted, Let us sing a hymn while our brother finishes his prayer. <laughs> that vivacious person who interrupted the man praying happened to be D.L. Moody, and his sensitivity to the inappropriateness of that long prayer caught Grenfell's attention. He stayed, listened to Mr. Moody's message, came to faith in Christ, and eventually went on to become a medical missionary in Labrador for 40 years. And the moral to the story? Never underestimate the power of a short prayer at crucial moments. Now, now don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with long prayers. David prayed and fasted all night as he pled for the life of his child born to Bathsheba. And Luke tells us Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before he called his 12 disciples. Many of the men and women in the Bible are known for their passionate, effective prayer lives. Again, there's nothing wrong with a long prayer. But I believe there are times when such prayers are inappropriate and ineffective. Certainly in that meeting hall full of seekers and skeptics, D.L. Moody realized the long prayer was having just the opposite effect. This is terrible, but I remember as a youngster in church sitting with a group of friends and actually timing the prayer of our Sunday school superintendent. I'm not sure what he prayed, but I can tell you that he was usually good for three and a half to four minutes. And for a 10-year-old, that's a long time. <laughs> I suspect by now some of you have raised eyebrows and wondering where I'm going with this. Others might be aghast that I would actually time someone's prayer, even as a 10-year-old. Well, before I lose you completely... Walk with me as we head out the dung gate in the old city of Jerusalem. Now, watch for the traffic as we cross the road. We're heading to the spur of land on which the original city of David was built. But you'll need to use just a bit of imagination because I want to take you to this part of town, not as it looked in David's day, but as it looked in the weeks just before the Babylonians broke in and destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem. There's so much to see on this spur of land, but come over here to this nice little courtyard just to the left of the entrance. You see that metal grate on the floor? Go over and look down into it. It might take a few seconds for your eyes to adjust, but follow the ladder inside all the way to the bottom. That's one deep pit carved into the bedrock. It's a cistern, and it's located between the palace built by King David and the larger palace built by King Solomon. We're standing in the part of town that the extended royal family called home. And it's possible that the cistern you're looking into is the one into which Jeremiah the prophet was cast. Jeremiah described the event this way. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern, there was no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. Imagine yourself sinking into the mud and muck that accumulates in a cistern over time. It's dark and cold. And as you slide into the mud, it's like quicksand. Your feet are trapped. You can't move. And to make matters worse, your enemies above are now throwing stones through that narrow opening, hoping to bash your skull and finish you off before the mud can suck you under or the combination of hypothermia and starvation ends your life. The New Living Translation of Jeremiah 3 captures Jeremiah's desperation. 
My enemies, whom I've never harmed, hunted me down like a bird. They threw me into a pit and dropped stones on me. The water rose over my head and I cried out, this is the end. Now, what kind of prayer would you pray if you were trapped in that cistern? I doubt if it would be a 10-minute discourse on the attributes of God, followed by a prayer for all the missionaries of the world. Your sincere prayer would likely be boiled down to just a few words, Oh God, help! And that's exactly how Jeremiah prayed. Jeremiah summarized his cistern prayer in the very next verses of Lamentations 3. But I called on your name, Lord, from deep within the pit. You heard me when I cried. Listen to my pleading, hear my cry for help. Yes, you came when I called. You told me, do not fear. The book of Lamentations records this emotional moment in Jeremiah's life. But back in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet tells us what was happening as he was praying. A servant went to the king and pleaded for the life of Jeremiah. That servant then led 30 men to the cistern to rescue Jeremiah. Jeremiah cried out in desperation, and God heard his prayer. One last point about the story. I'm sure Jeremiah was thinking God would send the king to rescue him. After all, the king knew Jeremiah was innocent. But the king didn't have the courage to stand against the nobles who wanted Jeremiah dead. So who did God use? His name was Ebed-Melech, which means a slave of the king. And it says he was an Ethiopian. Jeremiah's deliverer, his answer to prayer, was a black slave who possessed more character, courage, and conviction than the king himself. So what does the story of Jeremiah in the cistern have to do with prayer and with us? Well, frankly, many today are intimidated by prayer. They think God is looking for long, flowery prayers, prayers with great theological depth and skillful wording. But in reality, God is looking for honesty and sincerity, a time when you share your heart with him. And sometimes the best prayer you can pray is a cistern prayer, short, direct, and from the heart. Just ask Jeremiah. You know, maybe that's exactly where you are, feeling like you are in a cistern. And as Charlie said, maybe that just calls for a cistern prayer. We've all been there. Well, we uh, sure appreciate it when you take the time to email us. And we've got a number of great emails lately from folks like Bill. He says, second to church on Sunday, the land and the book is the highlight of my weekends. Hey, thanks, Bill. Elsie says, I recently began listening to your program online. I thoroughly love how well you explain the scriptures. Thank you for those kind words. And your email is welcome anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. Janie says, good morning, teachers. I like that, teachers. You inform us on such broad topics, inspire us to dig and seek and instruct us toward more Christ-likeness. Boy, I look forward to your weekly broadcast as I listen on Moody Radio. That's a neat comment. Thank you, Janie. And again, your email, your thoughts, welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. .edu. Maybe you've got an idea for a, a guest or a future program. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. One other favor we'd like to ask of you, would you share us with a friend? 
let somebody else know about the land and the book, would you? Where you listen, how they can listen. Appreciate your passing the word along. I'm John Geiger. Our time is gone. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.